guys! Welcome to the very first episode of Stage Directions. I'm Ashley Griffin, your very own theatrical Hermione Granger, and I wanted to kick off this series with a subject that was a big part of my first being assigned that nickname. It was given to me by the teachers, not even the other students, when I was at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, which should tell you a lot about me. Well, I've been working professionally in the arts since I was a kid, but when I got to New York, and NYU specifically, I started to realize that there is often a huge dichotomy between audience and critical reception in the musical theater world. Personally, I remember being horribly teased, and I'll probably get flack for it here too, when I would share that I was really deeply moved by Wicked when it first came out, and in fact all of Stephen Schwartz's work in general. When I was a senior, I had the great privilege of working with Carol DeGere, who wrote the first biography of Stephen. It's called Defying Gravity, and it's awesome. Go check it out. Through working with her, I got to read dozens of fan letters to Stephen, letters in which people's lives were literally changed by his work. One, for example, was from a man who shared that he and his wife were about to get a divorce when they went to see Pippin. They were so moved by the relationship between Catherine and Pippin that they decided to give their marriage another go, and were now about to celebrate their 50th anniversary. I also read just about every review Schwartz's work had ever received, most of which seemed to go out of its way to be as cruel as possible. My personal favorite is a review of the original production of Pippin, in which Julius Novick of The Village Voice wrote, Stupidity on stage is well and good when it is satirized or otherwise criticized. It becomes difficult to endure, however, when, in this case, the audience seems to share it. I got really frustrated that no one was mentioning this dichotomy in a school where we were being trained to be the next generation of musical theater artists and creators. I, for one, really want to create work that moves people, but is also going to be respected and have opportunities to be seen by the widest audience possible. And those two things, at least from where I was standing at the time, seemed to be mutually exclusive. So I petitioned the school to offer a course in it. Long story short, that didn't happen, but I was given permission to do a voluntary undergrad senior thesis and independent study under the mentorship of the fantastic Steve Nelson. Take his class. He teaches in the theater studies department, and he's also amazing. I wanted to explore the dichotomy between critical and audience reception in contemporary musical theater, as well as the validity of being deeply moved and affected by musical theater as an art form, specifically using Stephen's work because it offered a prime example. I know, total Hermione Granger, and I was majorly teased for it. I've gotten a lot of requests to talk about this subject, and so I thought I would start off with it here. I think it's a really vital subject matter for theater artists, especially creators. How can we create work that is at once deeply moving and commercially viable? Or are those two things destined to always be separate? Are our only two options sellout or starving artist? Let's dive in, and once you've listened to this episode, I would love for you to share your thoughts. The things I'm about to discuss are based on my personal research and ideas on the subject, but I would love to know what yours are as well. Before I jump in, I just want to thank Chris Peterson and the whole team at OnStage for asking me to create this podcast. And also, in the interest of full disclosure, I wanted to share that through doing this thesis at NYU, I ended up meeting and interviewing Stephen Schwartz, and he's since become an incredible mentor to me. So I am perhaps a little biased. I've also been a fan of his work since long before I met him, but I am aiming to enter this material from a place of neutrality, so I will not shy away from critical views of his work. So, without further ado... Let's dive in. A man's called a traitor or liberator. A rich man's a thief or philanthropist. Is one a crusader or ruthless invader? It's all in which label is able to persist. Just open the Grimmery, the behind-the-scenes book on the making of Wicked, and you will find dozens of stories of people who claim their life was changed by seeing Schwartz's work. 
Now, say you were entertained by a show, such a reaction is welcome. Even a show almost universally accepted as being seriously flawed can be entertaining. Look at the now cult hit Carrie the Musical. Say you were intellectually stimulated, all right too. But say you were deeply moved and that your life has been changed, and suddenly your very sanity is often called into question, at least by industry insiders. If one of the purposes of art is to change people, why is it so unacceptable if it does? Is it that we don't trust the strength of a personal change brought about by exposure to art, especially when it occurs in someone over the age of 15? Is it an experience so rare that it only exists as a mythic idea in the back of our collective unconscious? Or is it just that it's incomprehensible that a show that is far from perfect, indeed is quite flawed when analyzed, could still make a huge impact? Perhaps theater is all just smoke and mirrors in the end, the result of careful manipulation by the creators. It is a running legend on Broadway that amongst saccharine hit musicals, the stage manager has written in their script the exact time the audience will begin to cry, and it happens every night at exactly that time, down to the minute, like clockwork. If you say your life has been changed in the theater, are you merely a naive, emotional victim, a state mainly attributed to fanatic tween girls? Or are the intellectuals missing something, something that makes them very, very uncomfortable when they find it demonstrated in other people? Are all critics judgmental, unfeeling intellectuals? Or are all audience members lemmings? In order to understand how and why art is experienced differently by different groups of people, we first need to discern some basic facts about art itself. The question, what is art, has plagued us throughout time. If I throw a crumpled piece of paper onto the sidewalk, is it art? What if I had a very clear statement I intended to make with it? Such a question will probably never be satisfactorily answered, and so it is perhaps best to instead ask the question, what is the purpose of art? In reality, there are many. To entertain, to show a slice of life, to comment, to shock, to make money, to change the lives of those watching, even to connect us to our spirituality. Theater, at least what we know of the origins of contemporary Western theater, actually began as a religious ceremony. Theater not only related the stories of the gods, but more importantly, put people in touch with the divine. When the first actor, Thespis, from which we derive the word thespian, stepped out and spoke directly as the god, not just about the god, the invisible was literally made manifest. The god stood before the people, speaking directly to them, helping them to get in touch with the spiritual nature of being human. Indeed, today, one of the highest honors we can give to a theatrical piece is to say that it showed our humanity, something we can easily say is the greatest characteristic of Shakespeare, O'Neill, Shaw, etc. It seems easy to make this connection to classic plays of contemporary theater. But what about musical theater? That's a whole other thing, isn't it? It's easy to forget, partially because we don't have detailed records or instructions of how such elements were performed, that ancient Greek plays were musicals. All had musicians on stage, much of the text was sung, and there was dancing. Dancing and singing as revealers of the divine? Today, outside of the classical context of opera and ballet, they are much more closely linked with light entertainment. But it was not always so. The second most commanded Christian practice in the Bible, there are approximately 100 places in Psalms alone, is to sing. Why would music be that important? Martin Luther says, If you want to comfort the sad, if you want to terrify the happy, if you want to encourage the despairing, if you want to humble the proud, if you want to pacify the aggressive, there's no more effective means than music. That idea is generally accepted, but it still plays into the idea that music is merely a great stirrer of emotions. Ashley Kahn, music critic and author of A Love Supreme, The Story of John Coltrane, says in her book, As I listened to the album again and again, I felt impelled to address Coltrane's spirituality. 
Though I consider myself a dedicated agnostic and a diehard rationalist, I am ready to admit that there is much that can be seen as the handiwork of some eternal force under spiritual direction. The great composer-conductor Leonard Bernstein said about Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, Beethoven turns out pieces of breathtaking rightness. Rightness, that's the word. Our boy Beethoven has the real goods, the stuff from heaven. Beethoven has the power to make us feel at the finish of his symphony that there's something right in the world, something that checks throughout, something that follows its own law consistently, something we can trust, something that will never let us down. Many artists say that theater is their religion. That may be going too far, according to some, but regardless of your spiritual beliefs, regardless of the intellectual analysis of art, it cannot be denied that there is something inherent in music and singing that links us with something divine outside of ourselves. And it also can't be denied that it seems to be something we all need and desire. The ancient Greeks knew this, and so placed music and singing in all of their plays. The same is true with dance, though because of the focus on Schwartz, I place the emphasis on music. In both the examples above, the art that inspired such an experience, the album A Love Supreme by Coltrane and Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, are both considered masterpieces. The question, however, remains, does flawed art, that is, art that may be technically lacking, still retain that same power of the divine? If so, if every attempt at music contains the ability to show humanity its true nature, to change their lives, why bother with technique? Should we tell all students of composition, just write what you feel, don't worry about craft and technique, for you will move the people anyway? The thought is laughable. Both of the examples above were also serious works of art meant to achieve the pinnacle of what music can achieve. Does popular entertainment hold the same power? How do we know if a work of art is successful in whatever its aim may be, including linking us to the divine and reconciling us with our humanity? It is up to the three major players in this debate to decide. Art isn't easy, even when you've amassed it, fighting for prizes, no one can be an oracle, art isn't easy, suddenly you're past it, all compromises, and then when it's allegorical, art isn't easy, isn't easy, any way you look at it. The theatrical trinity. Who decides if art is successful? We can divide this into three categories. Number one, the creators. Namely, the artists involved in any theatrical piece, specifically those who contributed to the show's creation, the composer, lyricist, librettist, also referred to as the book writer, the director, choreographer, designers, and performers. For the purposes of this conversation, I will use the term creator to specifically refer to the author of the show, mainly the composer-lyricist. I do this for three reasons. One, the idea for a show often, one would hope ideally, starts with the writer, and they are the carriers of the theme and inspiration of the show throughout the entire creative process. Two, Stephen Schwartz, exemplar of the dichotomy between critical and audience reception, in that all of his shows have been central examples of this debate, is himself a composer-lyricist. Ironically, the creator of a theatrical work actually has little bearing on the critical versus audience debate. They are the silent element. The creator is in an interesting position. Everything they have to say is, or should be, in their work on stage. Their work will be commented on, but they have no opportunity to respond in the kind of public way a critic can share their opinions to those comments, whether positive or negative. They are the only member of our trio, creator, critic, and public, who can never be a part of the audience. They can watch the show, but they will never be able to experience it in the theater for the first time in the way that someone not involved with the production can. The only factor from the creator is... What did they put on stage? Even their intentions in what they put on stage are irrelevant. The work is the only say they have in the matter. The critic. The Oxford American Dictionary defines a critic as 
a person who judges the merits of literary, artistic, or musical works, especially one who does so professionally. But it goes on to an additional definition, a person who expresses an unfavorable opinion of something. For example, we might say, don't be such a critic if someone is pestering us about, say, the way our hair looks. The job of a professional theater critic is not to criticize, though it is an association that tends to ring true and something we'll come back to, but instead to, one, potentially and passively act as theater historians. Many reviewers put shows into a larger context and comment on their merits. There have been books published containing archived theatrical reviews, and indeed, critical judgment of a show tends to go down in history along with the work itself. However, it is impossible to truly record the historical merit of something when you're writing your review about a currently running show and don't have the benefit of hindsight. A critic's view will inevitably be seen as just as much a product of the time it was written in as the show it is reviewing, and will not necessarily herald the future interpretation of the show. Two, to sell papers. To be honest, the truth is that a scathing review, or at least a very creative review, whether good or bad, will sell more papers. Hence the strong reaction to the style, as opposed to the content, of the recent Times review of King Kong. Three, to tell potential audience members what they will most likely think about the play, the experience they will most likely have if they decide to see it. This is based on, A, the fact that the critic should be a reliable source who has a greater theatrical education and understanding than the average theatergoer, and B, the fact that the theater, especially Broadway theater, is very expensive and audiences cannot afford to go and see every show. They must be selective, and so they need someone who has seen every show to help guide them in their decision. I believe number three to be the most crucial and the trickiest. The critics' review will of course be based on what they thought of the show, and that's not always the best indication of what an audience will think. Sometimes it's as simple as two differing opinions. I enjoyed Wicked, my friend did not, understandable, and that often happens. The recent reviews of Tootsie, for example, were remarkably varied in terms of various critics' reactions to the material. The problem occurs when all the critics agree about something, and all the audience members disagree with them. In this case, something has gone wrong. But then again, not all critics or all audience members are the same, and the more we investigate, the more complex the types of critics and audience members become. The three types of critics. One, the critic who loves theater, whose dream was to grow up to be a critic. Two, the failed theater artist, that is, the writer, actor, director, who for whatever reason did not succeed in their chosen field and became critics instead. Three, journalists who were arbitrarily assigned the job and could just as easily be a food and wine or book critic. These three types of critics all play an integral role. However, the one thing they all have in common, at least all of the major well-respected critics, is that they are educated and very familiar with the theater and have seen more shows than the vast majority of people, including industry insiders. They are also required to approach the theater from an intellectual standpoint and have the unique job of analyzing what they are seeing. Number three, the audience. The audience is the most elusive aspect of the equation. You can probably count the major New York City critics on two hands. Likewise, stretching a bit, the major contemporary musical theater writers currently active on Broadway. But each night, Broadway's Gershwin Theater, home to Wicked, is capable of holding 1,933 audience members, Multiply that by eight performances a week, 15 years and counting, that's a massive number of people who can be included in this category who represent numerous types of people of different ages, education levels, career, cultural, and economic backgrounds. A critic is even technically an audience member when they go to see a show. Because of this wide diversity, it is impossible to lump the audience into an easily definable category. We cannot say that they are the general masses less educated in the theater than critics, 
By all rights, it should be almost impossible for such a large, diverse group of people to have a unified or close to unified reaction to a show. Yet it happens. Critic versus audience dichotomy. Make them laugh, and while their mouths are open, pour truth in. Harold Clerman, founder of the group theater. The work of Stephen Schwartz falls into an unusual gray area. His shows are some of the most successful musicals of all time. His credits include such musical theater mainstays as Godspell, Pippin, Children of Eden, and of course Wicked. In terms of their success, they are commercial entertainment, yet his shows also deal with heady subject matter not often found in popular shows. In 1972, when he was still in his 20s, Schwartz had two hits playing on Broadway to sold-out houses and a Tony nomination. Schwartz's score for Godspell was one of the first influential pop-rock scores on the Broadway scene, second only to Hair in its cultural impact when it was introduced in the late 1960s. Although it is clear that Godspell had a significant and hugely positive impact on audiences, critics felt differently, and their reaction to Godspell would prove to be a foreshadowing of the critical response Schwartz would continue to receive throughout his career. Critics enjoyed Godspell, however they had serious issues with Schwartz's music and lyrics. They found the lyrics too simple and objected to the fact that most had been taken directly from classic hymns. They were also not in favor of the type of musical score that Schwartz had written for the show in general, feeling that the music was much more suited to the contemporary pop genre than musical theater. Martin Godfried, critic for The Post, wrote, Stephen Schwartz, who wrote the music and lyrics for Godspell, went on, if that is how it must be described, to do the songs for Pippin, 1972, and The Magic Show, 1974, both of which are still running. As he modestly points out in his biographical notes, that makes him the first composer-lyricist in Broadway history to have three hits running concurrently in New York. The shows may well be still running despite his scores, which are musical in the technical sense only, if that. Day by day, the hit song from Godspell is but eight measures long and is repeated endlessly. Perhaps Schwartz wrote himself out with it. Although the technical arguments against Schwartz's work may be valid, what is more difficult to reconcile is the mocking, almost bullying tone with which the reviews that are unfavorable of Schwartz are written, a tone which is hinted at in Schwartz's Godspell reviews, but would become much more pronounced with his later shows. The late 60s and 70s were the beginning of the death of Broadway, as some theater academics have dubbed the current state of theater in our society, raising the question how valid was the audience's response to Godspell or to Schwartz's shows in general. Did their favor of a score that critics deemed less than adequate signify a lowering of the tastes and standards of American musical theatergoers? For Schwartz's next show, Pippin, T.E. Column of Time wrote, A phalanx of Marine Corps MPs would not be able to keep audiences away from Pippin. Does this mean that it is one of the pinnacles of the art of musical comedy? Hardly. What Pippin possesses is splendiferous theatricality, the kick of a lightning bolt and a passionate professional knack for being entertaining. The show satisfies the popular, non-platonic ideal of a U.S. musical. Many critics also argued that Pippin, and later Wicked, were successes only because of the marketing strategies of their producers. Pippin was the first Broadway musical ever to advertise with a TV commercial. In fact, Pippin had already run for a year and had sold out for much of that year and was on its way now dipping when they ran the television commercial, allowing the show to run for much longer. New York Times critic Charles Isherwood, in his review of the more recent Deaf West revival, articulated an interesting mix of annoyance at the material and acknowledgement of the overwhelming power Pippin has amongst audience members. He writes, Pippin is generally considered a fey relic of its hopeful troubled era. It has never been revived on Broadway and is probably most often seen in high schools and colleges where its sing-songy charms and simple sentiments can still work their magic on hearts and minds unsullied by cynicism. 
but the original cast album is a touchstone for generations of musical theater lovers, and even listeners only casually exposed to Broadway music in childhood. Anecdotal evidence suggests there are great swaths of the American population between the ages of 40 and 55 for whom Mr. Schwartz's tuneful score is a Proustian trigger for all sorts of warm memories. Anecdote number one. In the 1980s, a college roommate of mine played the show's opening number, Magic To Do, incessantly in the year we lived together. I countered the assault with toxic doses of The Cure's most relentlessly dirgy album, Pornography, and yet I can still sing along with Ben Vereen from first note to last. Anecdote number two. I recently spent an evening at the funky West Village piano bar Marie's Crisis with a female friend who refused to leave until she heard Corner of the Sky. Her plaintive wailing, Pippin! Pippin! eventually exacerbated the pianist and she won her point. The need in those cries still haunts me. Schwartz has said that he truly believed the critic's negative response to his work until he started receiving fan mail telling him how much people loved to score for the show and how the story moved and inspired people. In a 2006 interview, he said, I actually believed that Pippin succeeded because of the triumph of style over content until I started getting all those letters from people about how the show changed their lives and saved their marriages and made other choices. People still say to me it was the first show I ever saw and it meant so much to me. You don't feel that way about shows which have no content. So obviously the content was speaking to someone. It just wasn't speaking to the Broadway establishment in the same way the content of Wicked doesn't speak to the Broadway establishment. Therefore, they don't understand that there is any. The response to his subsequent shows followed the same pattern set by Godspell and Pippin. In 2005, an anonymous interviewee said about Children of Eden, The summer after I graduated high school, I was cast in a production of Children of Eden as Adam. I was familiar with the show, seen it twice before, once as a community theater show and the other as the professional touring company. I came to so many realizations about the depth of the script and the true beauty of the music. Several times when performing the finale, I would be moved to tears by what the lyrics were saying. Children of Eden deals with human nature, suffering, and reconciliation in a touching, heart-wrenching way. My dad came to see the show. He likes theater, but he never shows much emotion about anything. When I saw him afterward, he was crying. Apparently, the music and story had affected him so much. This man, who I had rarely seen moved to tears, had been shown a side of his mortality and the precious gift of life. To this day, it has been his favorite show he has ever seen me in and compares all others to it. To be involved in a show that touches people this profoundly is a rare treat. I love the show and Schwartz's music. Schwartz's next big musical was Wicked, and once again, though the show, and especially the performers, got generally positive reviews, Schwartz was slammed for his score, as was Winnie Holtzman for her book. Ben Brantley wrote in the New York Times, The show's 22 songs were written by Mr. Schwartz, and not one of them is memorable. The talk is festooned with cutely mangled words, swankified, thrillified, gratitution, that bring to mind the language of Smurfs. Miss Menzel miraculously finds the commanding presence in the plainness of her part, and she opens up her voice in flashy ways that should be required study for all future contestants on American Idol. However, what happened with Wicked was similar to what happened with Pippin. Audiences loved it. In fact, it has become more than just a successful musical. It has become an institution, with hordes of tween and teenage girls still flocking to the stage door each night as if they were at a rock concert. Many critics feel that one of the reasons for the show's success is that it is a rare musical that tells the story of a friendship between two strong women, thereby finding a huge fan base in young girls and their mothers. However, for every story of a tween girl being moved and inspired by the show, 
There is a story of a middle-aged man who was dragged to a musical and ended up in tears at the end of the show, and now can't stop listening to the cast album. Although Schwartz is the most startling example of this critic-audience dichotomy, he is by no means the first. One of the most stunning examples is the response to the original production of The Sound of Music. Although the reviews were decidedly mixed and, in general, leaned toward the favorable side, the show was subjected to intense, almost mocking criticism. Walter Kerr wrote in the New York Herald Tribune, Before The Sound of Music is halfway through its promising chores, it becomes not only too sweet for words, but almost too sweet for music. The people on stage have melted long before our hearts do. The Sound of Music would of course go on to become one of the most celebrated musicals of all time. It is also interesting to note that this Too Sweet show deals with the horrors of the Nazi takeover of Austria during World War II. Much like the underlying themes of prejudice, political corruption, and animal rights in Wicked, this is unusual and very dark fare for a musical, and interesting that in both cases the underlying themes were ignored by critics, though they strongly resonated with audience members, though I'm certainly not trying to equate Nazis with Aussie and fascism. Why a universal response to a show might not be that out there. So what's different about Schwartz's work from other shows that don't lead to such a consistent dichotomy? With the possible exception of The Magic Show, Schwartz's musicals all deal with theme and character on a mythic scale. Carl Jung developed the idea of the collective unconscious and, along with Joseph Campbell, the theory of universal myth. Jung perceived that the journey of transformation is a key element of religion. It is a journey to meet the self and, at the same time, to meet the divine. Unlike Sigmund Freud, Jung thought spiritual experience was essential to our well-being. Since transformation is so tied to the roots of spiritual experience, Jung even went so far as to tell one of his patients, a struggling alcoholic, that the only way he could become sober was to have a spiritual experience. It is believed that this prescription led to the creation of Alcoholics Anonymous. Interconnected with this idea of spirituality is the idea that there are a certain number of universal myths in the collective unconscious of humanity. Myths such as control, crusade, justice, luck, and preparation are known and understood by all people. Jung believed that the reenactment of myth in whatever form is vital to our well-being for the basic reason that it reveals truth and shows us that we are not alone. Schwartz's shows, unlike some musicals, deal with mythic stories. Schwartz was quoted as saying that part of the success of Wicked is that there is a green girl inside us all. Those mythic ideas are universal and can be seen in older, classic, moving theatrical works. But the difference is that Wicked is a musical, complete with Broadway-sized spectacle, and such mythic stories are more expected and accepted in serious dramatic works. This mythic idea is inherent in all of Schwartz's works. Children of Eden tells the biblical story of the creation through the flood, focusing on generational themes of parents and children, forgiveness and redemption. Godspell tells the story of Christ according to the Gospel of Matthew. Pippin deals with the meaning of life, personal fulfillment, and the value of suicide, heady themes for musical entertainment. And yet, entertain they all do. Schwartz said in a 2006 interview, My speculation about it, obviously it can only be speculation, is that I tend to deal with that type of subject matter. I deal a lot with family conflict, with parent-child relationships, reconciling oneself to the realities of life, to the inevitable disappointments and compromises, the need for forgiveness, for the need to be true to oneself, consequences, and things like that that people wrestle with. I don't think you can actually change someone with a work of art. What you can do is galvanize someone to do something that they already were on their way to doing, or that they were perhaps afraid to do. I think you can encourage, and I think you can energize, and I think you can make people think sometimes, but I don't think you can ever change somebody's mind. 
But if somebody's open to think about something another way, I think a work of art, a movie, or a play can open horizons for people. And I think that the fact that maybe some of my work seems to do that, as I have anecdotal evidence, is because I'm dealing with things that concern me, but also seems to concern a lot of other people. So I guess what I'm saying in a very long-winded way is that I think the subject matter has a lot to do with that. It is perhaps easy to see the mythic underpinnings of high-concept musicals. For example, Into the Woods is a musical completely based off of fairy tales. But ironically, Mamma Mia, typically considered a fluff show, is incredibly mythic in scope, dealing with a young girl searching for her identity by finding her father. On the flip side, when The Little Mermaid was adapted to the stage, its mythic elements, which helped make it one of the most successful animated musicals of all time, became vague and unfocused, with the emphasis being placed so much on creating a girl power politically correct show that the inherent story was lost. It is ironic that many producers wishing to create a financially successful Broadway show look to and copy the surface elements instead of examining why that show was successful in the first place, mainly the story being told. Jeffrey Fisk said, Tell the story and the ideas will emerge. If you focus on the ideas, you will lose the story and the audience. Universal, mythic, galvanizing themes don't seem, however, to be the focus of the critic. In fact, such things are almost never mentioned in reviews, and it is interesting that critics who don't seem to be dealing with or addressing such issues rarely, if ever, seem to have a life-changing experience themselves at the theater. Is it possible that they've just made up their mind and are not open to the possibility of having such an experience? No lack of alibis. Your knack for the spectacular is still intact. I like the tone of it. It rings sincere and pretty near succeeds. It's just the narrative is like a sieve and cloudy as a cataract. There's not a trace of honesty, so face the fact. It needs work. The difficulty with being a highly educated theater critic is that while you may have a better understanding of the technical elements that make up a show than the average audience member, you are also much harder to please than most theatergoers. On the first day of classes in many university arts programs, in subjects ranging from acting to performance studies, it is not uncommon for the professor to begin class by saying, Congratulations, this is the last day you will ever enjoy theater. Are education and enjoyment mutually exclusive? Regardless of the answer, it seems to be a merit badge of sorts to be removed and unemotional in response to a theatrical event. Perhaps the idea is that in order to be logical and unbiased, emotion must be removed from the equation, much like the disassociation required from doctors when working with a patient. In the Robin Williams film Patch Adams, Dean Walcott says to the new med students on their first day, Our job is to rigorously and ruthlessly train the humanity out of you and make you into something better. We're going to make doctors out of you. It would be a poor doctor who let his emotions affect how he operates on a patient. Is a critic likewise best able to do his job when he can stand back from and analyze a theatrical experience from outside the emotion of it? C.S. Lewis writes in God in the Dock, Human intellect is incurably abstract. The only realities we experience are concrete. This pain, this pleasure, this dog, this man. While we are loving the man, bearing the pain, enjoying the pleasure, we are not intellectually apprehending pleasure, pain, or personality. When we begin to do so, on the other hand, the concrete realities sink to the level of mere instances or examples. We are no longer dealing with them, but with that which they exemplify. This is our dilemma, either to taste and not to know, or to know and not to taste. As thinkers, we are cut off from what we think about, 
as tasting, touching, willing, loving, hating, we do not clearly understand. The more lucidly we think, the more we are cut off. The more deeply we enter into reality, the less we can think. You cannot study pleasure in the moment of the nuptial embrace, nor repentance while repenting, nor analyze the nature of humor while roaring with laughter. But when else can you really know these things? The job of the critic is to think about and analyze what they have seen, but in order to do so, they must first experience it. Interestingly, even those in the medical profession recently have begun to acknowledge that emotional connection is not only beneficial for the doctor-patient relationship, it is essential. The question is, after all their education, constant exposure to theater, and working for years in such an analytical job, is it still possible for critics to be moved in the same way as audience members? If it is, is it up to the critic to seek such an experience out, to hope for the best and give themselves up to each production they review? Is it a comment on the quality of musical theater or on the attitude of the reviewer that critics seem to rarely, if ever, have such an experience? Regardless of the answer, it seems that critics themselves are not terribly concerned with the question. The way many reviews are written, they seem more concerned with displaying superior opinions and intellect and tearing down the negative aspects of a show than in praising the successes. Regardless of the true role of the critic, the term critic, as in the adjective critical, has a negative connotation. The term positive criticism denotes putting a positive or constructive spin on possibly negative feedback. There's no need for the term negative criticism, since criticism itself carries an automatically negative meaning. This may simply be a result of the fact that a critic is holding the thing they are reviewing to a much higher standard than the average person. An audience member may be thrilled by the fun songs and exciting singing of a particular show. The critic, however, will know that, in fact, the orchestra has been cut in half from what it was originally meant to be, as have the vocal arrangements, and that, plus the fact that the fourth alto from the left is off-key, make the music a poor and shoddy replica of the original. In that respect, critics are the unflinching truth-tellers of the Broadway community. The fact that they are not critiqued themselves means that they can indeed say whatever they want and fear no reprisals. The irony is that, if they say something shockingly negative, they become such a truth-teller but profess an unpopular, often positive opinion, and the entire community, including other critics, will make sure you hear about it. Sunday in the Park with George was hated by all critics except one who dared to stand up to the critical establishment and praise the show in his review. Apparently, he was all but ostracized for his opinions. Perhaps it is merely a matter of pride, the idea that after all our experience and education, we're not going to be taken in by the ridiculous shows that make preschoolers jump for joy. The other difficulty of being so educated and so familiar with shows and artistic creators is that there must be a bias before the critic even steps into the theater, whether she intends it or is even aware of it or not. News travels fast on Broadway, and even if it is possible to walk into a show with absolutely no knowledge or opinions of it, an impressive achievement in itself, it is not possible to not have some feeling toward the artists involved in the project. The same bias occurs with all people, if I'm not a fan of, say, Angelina Jolie in the films I've seen her in in the past, I probably expect that I'm not going to like her in her new film when I go to see it. But critics also hear about the dirt on artists and shows, information which can affect them just as much as an individual performance can. It's a running theory that Schwartz's early success, plus his heated dispute with Broadway's golden boy Bob Fosse, put Schwartz on the critics' hate list, a position that has lasted to this day. Another irony is that critics, in some sense, are themselves creators. They use words, sometimes in a very artistic way, to create an experience for the audience, the reader. Ben Brantley wrote in his 2008 review of the Broadway production of The Little Mermaid, titled Fish Out of Water in the Deep Blue Sea, 
What this Little Mermaid feels like, above all, is a cynical reversal of a once traditional pattern of art and commerce. It used to be that the show came first, followed by merchandising tie-ins. Thoroughly plastic and trinket-like, this show seems less like an interpretation of a movie musical than of the figurines and toys it inspired. The imagery is elegant, descriptive, and paints a clear and thought-provoking picture. Many of the qualities required to be a theater artist are the same qualities required to be an effective critic. Faculty and creativity with words, knowledge of linguistic and argumentative structure, and an ability to tell a story and communicate information. They are attempting to move their audience, albeit in an intellectual way, to the feeling or opinion they are communicating in their review. They cannot be completely logical, analytical creatures. The question, then, perhaps, is not whether or not critics can be moved in the theater, but whether or not they even want to be, especially where certain shows are concerned. Does being a critic become just a job after a while? Do critics go from recreational fans to cynical theatergoers, and is that position a matter of pride? Even if they've lost that initial joy with the state of theater in our culture being what it is, can you blame them? I mean, I don't understand completely. I'm not surprised. But he combines all these different trends. I'm not surprised. You can't divide our today into categories neatly. Oh. What matters is the means, not the end. I'm not surprised. That, that is the state, state of the art, art, my dear. That is the state of the art. It's not enough knowing good from rotten. You're telling me. When something new pops up every day. You're telling me. It's only new though for now. Nouveau. But yesterday's forgotten. And tomorrow is already passé. There's no surprise. That is the state of the art, my friend. That is the state of the art. The hot word, as far as critical praise is concerned, seems to be innovation. When a composer creates music unlike any ever heard before on a Broadway stage, or a lyricist seems to have found a completely original rhyme, then the writing is said to be new and innovative and immediately grabs mostly positive attention. Stephen Sondheim is a perfect example. Whether or not the show as a whole is liked seems to be beside the point, since it will go down in history as an advancement of the art form. It is this idea of innovation that can help explain the difference between critical analysis of straight theater and musical theater when it comes to the dichotomy between critical and audience reception. Straight theater and musical theater are just plain treated differently and have been since their inception. They tend to attract different kinds of audiences, and whereas musical theater, having evolved out of lower entertainment such as burlesque, vaudeville, operetta, and ethnic theater, traditionally defined in American theater as Yiddish theater and minstrel shows, it is still not considered as high art as straight theater. After all, would you put Mamma Mia in the same category as Cat on a Hot Tin Roof? No, and why should you? But perhaps the difference isn't in their worth, but in their intent. After the tragedy of 9-11, it was musical comedies that flourished. Sometimes people just need to have fun, and sometimes they need to take a cold, hard look at the state of the human race. But while I don't believe that there should be a class distinction, there is. And I believe it has to do both with heritage, after all, even screwball comedies are treated reverently, so it can't be a factor of genre, and financial success, which we will address further a little later. Innovation is the factor that can link musical theater to straight theater, and indeed is one of the only things that can cause as much reverence in a musical as in a straight play. Even if the shows themselves are not lauded, after all, most of the reviews for Sondheim's Sunday in the Park with George bashed the show, but then again, so did many audience members, it is ultimately treated with great reverence by both critics and audiences. To this day, there are people who can't make heads or tails of Sunday, yet they go see it anyway for the same reason that it is emphasized in musical theater history books, because it did something new with the medium. This is not to say that Sunday isn't moving, indeed, I believe it very much is, but merely to demonstrate a point. Who critiques the critic? 
The creator of a theatrical event must reconcile themselves with the fact that everyone, audiences, other members of the theatrical community, critics, even those who haven't seen their show, will be commenting on their work, analyzing it, and picking it apart. They can make their artistic statement, but cannot comment on it. A critic, however, finds himself in the opposite situation. The critic judges the work of others, but receives no judgment herself. There is no one in the position of holding the critic accountable for their reviews. I mean only for their opinion, not the technical requirements for writing a review. If they praise or trash a show, no one is in the position to publicly say, wait a minute, their review is careless, prejudiced, and inaccurate. This is obviously changing in the wake of online bloggers, but the fact remains that a New York Times reviewer will be more widely read and remembered than a response written by a blogger. Does this position of absolute power have an effect on the critic? The opposite position certainly affects creators. Some have been accused of altering their vision in order to please the critics. Some experimental artists even specifically create works meant to thumb their nose at the critical establishment. If nothing else, it forces them to consider the impact of every decision they make very, very carefully, since every decision will be publicly scrutinized. But the job of the creator is to affect those watching their show, and that job would not change even if their shows were never reviewed. They would still have to carefully weigh every artistic decision, although the idea of doing certain things to impress critics would be a mute issue. However, would a critic's review be affected if they knew there was someone who would be critiquing it? Perhaps. More importantly, what if there was a way to measure the effectiveness of their review? Perhaps there is, in the response of audience members. If audiences go to a show that received a negative review, or in the rarer instance, avoid a show that received a positive review, that action in and of itself may herald a disagreement, a trusting of other sources over that of the critic whose review they've read, for example. It may also anticipate a decline in the importance of the critic, or may simply be a result of the personal tastes of various audience members. And once the audience has seen the show, it is possible that their collective opinion may differ from that of the critics, as in the case of Wicked, and can show this in their word-of-mouth recommendations, attending the show more than once, or posts online. It seems that, rather than take the feedback as a type of review, critics instead become defensive and defend their position against that of the general population. This reaction may be the result of several factors. Do success and popularity matter? Financial success. Musicals today tend to fall into one of two categories. The commercial Mamma Mia type shows whose primary purpose is to make money and provide fun for audiences, and the innovative concept musical best exemplified by Stephen Sondheim, and more recently by Adam Gettle, and even Michael John Lacusa, which place value on being artistic and intelligent above being commercially successful. None of Sondheim's shows in their original incarnations have been financially successful. His revivals, of course, have been. Especially in recent years, the gap between these two categories has widened. With Broadway budgets skyrocketing and movie studios becoming theatrical producers, the point of many new musicals is merely to entertain and make a profit. In the age of, if it works, make ten more just like it, we've had an influx of such new musical categories as the jukebox musical, the movie musical, and the general nostalgia musical. While they may or may not succeed at their goal, for example, Jersey Boys, a jukebox musical utilizing the song catalog of the Four Seasons, was hugely successful, even winning the Tony Award for Best New Musical. Good Vibrations, the Beach Boys musical, however, was a disastrous failure. Critics treated them and responded to them as fluffy, popular new musicals and seemed to approach them differently than they would an artistic new work. High-concept musicals have also attempted to succeed over the years. Shows such as The Light in the Piazza and Grey Gardens garnered critical raves for their theatrical innovation and themes. 
Interestingly, while both these shows ended up being financially successful, neither was a runaway hit, and were both more embraced by an intellectual theater crowd than by the screaming masses. However, when high-concept musicals go bad, they go very bad, and shows such as The Vampire Trilogy, Dance of the Vampires, Dracula, and Lestat, as well as In My Life, Hot Feet, and even the off-Broadway Frankenstein were ridiculed by both audiences and critics alike. Schwartz seems to fall into a gray area here. His shows are certainly commercially successful. In fact, he has written some of the most successful shows in Broadway history. However, his shows also deal with issues that one would normally associate with a high-concept musical. For some reason, this is never addressed in reviews of his work. Perhaps the fact that Schwartz favors a more popular style of music over the types of classically inspired, sometimes atonal work of more high-concept composer lyricists such as Stephen Sondheim has put off theater intellectuals. Or it may be that shows that are financially successful, meaning runaway financial hits, not just shows that slowly begin to make a profit after recouping their investment, tend to develop a stigma about them. Theater is a difficult business, and the unofficial mantra, art for art's sake, has become a guiding philosophy for theater intellectuals and struggling artists alike. It's almost as if the only true moving art worth doing is that which is not financially successful. This view has been compounded in recent years because of the skyrocketing costs of tickets. It is not unusual to pay upward of $400 for an orchestra seat at most Broadway theaters. This practice began with the producers, who raised the top ticket price in order to compete with the ever-growing scalpers, who were taking in hundreds of dollars regularly. This only increased the sentiment that theater was now being created for financial gain, not for the sake of art. After all, who but the wealthiest could afford to go to the theater at all at those prices? The mega-blockbuster musical is also a relatively new concept. Shows have certainly always been successful, but until about 30 years ago, none ran longer than a few years. A Chorus Line was the first long-running musical by today's standards, and the British import Mick Musicals, exemplified by The Phantom of the Opera, Cats, and Les Miserables, went on to set new records. The Phantom of the Opera is still running, and Les Miserables was revived on Broadway in an almost identical production only a couple of years after the original had closed. The general consensus is that the longer these shows run, the more their quality deteriorates. So what is the benefit of running them for so long besides the financial gain? Is it possible that a show is still just as moving after running for 20 years? Regardless of the answers, many in the theatrical community feel that successful popular shows end up running for decades, their quality deteriorating, taking away potential theaters from new shows, with ticket prices ever increasing. Like it or not, there is a bias against financial success in the theater world. Everyone's a critic. With new online reviewing, do professional critics matter? In the golden age of Broadway, a pan in the New York Times meant the closing of a show. Likewise, a rave spelled sure success. Nowadays, the Times is often not the first stop for the general public trying to decide whether or not to see a show. For that, they turn to online blogging, chat rooms, and YouTube. In some ways, this is potentially a more accurate gauge for the success or failure of a show. If you are an average theatergoer and you want to find out what you'll think of a show, why not look to another average theatergoer? Better yet, why not read the comments of 200 average theatergoers? Word of mouth has been proven to be the most effective marketing tool, and mass blogging is word of mouth taken to the next level. Take the new Broadway show Be More Chill, for example. The show was overwhelmingly panned when it workshopped out of town, but people around the world discovered it online, specifically in the demo album the creators made publicly available, and that new online fan base led to the show's Broadway transfer. So, so many opinions available, is there any reason to have official theater critics anymore? Even if there is for historical archiving purposes, do they really affect whether someone goes to see a show or not? Bloggers themselves have interesting responses to this topic. 
several posters on Broadway World have said, I never base shows off of reviews. I usually will go to a new show's website and look at video clips, music clips, and pictures to see if it interests me. If it interests me, I see the show. In programs, we read bios of the actors and production team. I have long believed that newspapers should publish the background and qualifications of their critics. The art of theater criticism, and it is an art, is waning, mainly because people do not understand the difference between critics and reviewers. A reviewer should essentially be able to tell you whether the show is worth spending your hard-earned dollars on or not, and why. Theater critics are a different breed. They are there to write an educated analysis of each play and point out specific flaws. The idea originally was to encourage the authors to avoid these same pitfalls in subsequent shows. Of course, much of this is highly subjective, but good critics can write perceptively without alienating their readers. The last good critic the New York Times had was Frank Rich, and he burned out very quickly. It's an occupational hazard of the job when you are faced with reviewing so much total dreck. I find the previous statement about critics meant to help the authors by analyzing their work in a constructive way very interesting, especially today when the development of a show usually includes dozens of readings with talkbacks, workshops, meetings getting feedback from producers, not to mention having the opinions of the often multiple creative teams that have worked on a show by the time it goes up, and upward of 20 producers on the final product, the creators are at no loss for critical feedback of their work, most of which often boils down to individuals' personal tastes, not all of which can or should be implemented in the show. In this day and age, a critic's thoughts, no matter how intelligent, have become merely one more, often contradictory, opinion to throw on the pile. Some people take the middle ground between complete rejection or idolization of critics. This middle ground is probably a bit closer to the norm, with critics acting as advisors but not edict givers. It does mean, however, that critics must work harder and harder to get people to listen to and even simply read their reviews. Some critics acknowledge that they make their reviews as negative as possible in order to attract readers. Is this predicament the fault of the critics, or lack of interest or trust from audiences? Why is there a lack of trust? Or are audiences just foolish in their choice of who to listen to? Are they listening to their peers over more intelligent commentary? Roger Ebert said of Charlie Theron in his review of Monster, There is a certain tone in the voices of some critics that I detest, that superior way of explaining technique in order to destroy it. They imply that because they can explain how Theron did it, she didn't do it, but she does it. One of the rising criticisms of audience members is the overabundance of standing ovations. The frustration comes not only from the critical community, but also from those directly involved with the creation of a show. Why would artists be upset that they are consistently getting standing ovations? The issue goes to the heart of one of the growing concerns about audience response. Are audiences really being moved, or are they creating a false experience for themselves? In the golden days of musical theater, a standing ovation was something rare and special, only given when something truly extraordinary occurred. Nowadays, they are given at almost every performance of every show. Has something changed in the quality of Broadway shows? Are they functioning at a level high above previous productions? Highly doubtful. It therefore stands to reason that something has instead changed in audiences. Going to the theater is no longer a common, regular activity, at least not for most people. Now, in order to have an evening at the theater, a person starts out by spending, on average, about $200 on a ticket. If they bring someone with them, that's $400. If they get a babysitter, that's another $60 or so. Parking in the city can be around $50. Dinner and a nice glass of wine is another $75. Of course, you want to buy a program and a t-shirt, which will run you $60. When all is said and done, this couple has now spent $825 on an evening out at a Broadway show. 
it better be the most extraordinary experience they've ever had. Some feel that this expectation, this internal demand for justification, ironically does not lead to a letdown and disappointment in the evening, but rather a false over-enjoyment. They are going in planning on being wowed, and therefore allow themselves to be wowed by everything. This is only exacerbated by the fact that in our media-heavy society, shows are extraordinarily hyped. TV commercials, print ads, billboards, blogs, you name it. Rarely is the average theater-goer researching all the shows currently running, learning about the cast and creative team, and making an informed decision on what they feel will most appeal to them. Instead, they base their choice of show off of who won the best musical Tony, what their friends like, or what the hotel concierge recommended. In some ways, they are simply being told by the outside world what they will like, spending money on it, and liking it because, well, if they don't, they're out $825 for nothing. This would seem to indicate the lemming theory. People will like whatever you tell them to like. However, spending money does not make people like a show, so there must be something going on, even in the most criticized shows, that genuinely cause a strong emotional response in audience members. As Roger Ebert expressed, just because a critic can tell you how something in a show was done doesn't mean that the show didn't do it. Often critics get caught up with analyzing and dissecting what they are seeing, trying to identify the man behind the curtain. Does knowledge of technique mean you are unable to appreciate the illusion that technique is creating? Is it a mentality of, if they expect something to seem magical, then they better create real magic? But just because we know how Houdini escaped death doesn't mean he didn't do it. Perhaps critics are loath to acknowledge that artists are able to do something that they cannot. Likewise, just because there may have been a stronger or better artistic choice the creators could have made doesn't mean that there is no merit in the way they chose to do it. After all, a creator would never choose to do something that didn't speak to them in some way. Even if they're just there to earn a paycheck, they're not going to deliberately self-sabotage. So there must be something inherently there from the beginning, whether it is effectively communicated or not. Perhaps critics, having seen so much theater, require more to give them the same experience that general audience members have much more easily. Perhaps it's that they're walking in with a different set of expectations. There is an old theater adage, fake it till you make it. If you walk into a show wanting to be moved, perhaps it is more likely that you will be. If you walk in not expecting to, perhaps it is less likely that you will. But does looking for a moving experience mean you're deluded or manipulating yourself? We often forget that that mentality can work both ways. As Abraham Lincoln said, if you look for the bad in mankind expecting to find it, you surely will. Is it possible to create a formula that tapping into the universal mythology of our collective unconscious can make us laugh, cry, or cheer on cue? Is it the story or the machine that makes us respond to a show that has been running for two decades the same way we responded to it on opening night? Original cast members of long-running shows have been known to stay in their roles until the day the production closes. Special effects, such as the falling chandelier and phantom that were once revolutionary in the original production, now appear old-fashioned. Stories are rampant of the things cast members do to keep themselves entertained doing eight shows a week of a show that runs multiple decades. A Forbidden Broadway number parodied such a situation, replacing the lyrics to On My Own from the long-running hit Les Miserables to On My Phone, implying that the cast members are just going through the motions and are so bored that when they are supposed to be dead on the barricades or waiting to die, they are actually texting and having full-blown conversations with family members and friends in other Broadway shows on their iPhones. Rotating upstage where it's dark, there isn't anyone to talk to. I say my lines, I hit my mark, but I keep looking at the clock too. Until I enter next, there's lots of time to send 
a text on my phone. I check up on my voicemail on my phone behind the lamey's rubble. Without lights, the murky shadows hide me. In case I'm feeling bored, I keep my iPhone close beside me. David Rooney, in response to the Les Mis section of Forbidden Broadway Rude Awakening, said in his Variety Review, The delirious turntable action from a cast of Living Dead, condemned to spend eternity in an embalmed British 80s import, showcases writer Alessandri's indestructible comic broadside with all guns blazing. Much of the criticism of the machine-like quality of long-running shows stems from the way in which a long-running show is maintained— once the original production with the original cast is frozen, meaning that no more changes will be made to the script, blocking, or choreography, the creative team departs, going to work on other projects. They will occasionally come back to see the show, and the choreographer may have pickup rehearsals, but it is often several months at least between such visits. Often the creative team is not even a part of the casting process once the show opens. Instead, the casting is done by casting directors, and the quality is maintained by the stage managers and dance captains. This arrangement is usually adequate for some time after a show has opened, but when you're talking about a truly long-running show, cast members, dance captains, and stage managers often leave to pursue other work. This means that you may eventually have a replacement of a replacement of a replacement dance captain teaching a new cast member their role. And by this point, it's not the choreographer who comes in every so many months, it's the original dance captain. This is exacerbated by the fact that when new cast members come into a show, they are typically given at most one week to learn their track, their role. The very advent of the term track to mean the role that the performer will play almost encourages the idea of Broadway as a machine. Scenery pieces move on and off stage via a physical track built into the floor. To call a performer's role a track is to imply that they are just being hooked into the continuous machinery of the show, moving on and off stage as mechanically as the scenery. Whereas original cast members have at bare minimum a month, plus an out-of-town tryout, in which to discover and create their character along with the creative team, who often create staging lines and songs around their actors' strengths and interpretation of the role, new cast members have a week to learn basically what notes to sing and where to stand on stage. While some shows encourage bringing personal interpretation to a part, many fully admit that they want the actor to just copy the original performance, and oftentimes an actor will be cast just because they look like the person whose track they are filling and will fit into the costume. Broadway stages are dangerous now as well. Not only do you have the physical tracks in the stage, actual gaps in which feet, shoe heels, and costumes can get caught, you also have moving scenery, elaborate props, and people to contend with. The actress playing Nessa Rose in Wicked not only has to learn her songs in blocking, but must also learn to operate two separate wheelchairs, including technical components that allow for some of the magical effects. Not only are the chairs heavy, but the stage of Wicked is raked, meaning that it is higher in the back than it is in the front. Nessa Rose has doubled the work to push herself up the stage, and if she does anything wrong, her chair could roll into the orchestra pit. The actress often has at most one put-in rehearsal, meaning one rehearsal with the cast on stage with props and costumes. When the actress playing Nessa has her opening night, she can't possibly give her best acting performance, she's just trying not to get killed. The situation is made worse by the fact that of their week of rehearsal, an actor gets at most a couple of hours to work on the stage. The rest of the time is spent in a rehearsal room. Add to that the fact that the show is now being taught by the fifth dance captain who themselves learn their track and everyone else's in a week. 
and the new performer is learning a copy of a copy of a copy of their track, only leading to their giving a copy of a copy of a copy of a performance, and the show becoming a copy of a copy of a copy of the original. An actor doesn't have time to learn why they are supposed to move their arms on a certain lyric. They only have time to learn that they have to move it. The new dance captain might not even know why to tell them. Add to that the fact that they perform the same show eight times a week, often for years, and even if the cast once knew the motivation behind each movement, they may have either forgotten or so on autopilot that they don't think about it. The end result is something important and valuable being lost from the original production. And yet, something manages to surpass or rise above all these mechanical elements to still move people. Is it the inherent story? Possibly. How else do you explain the endurance of certain myths throughout time? Are the actors so good that they are able to rise above their limitations and give stunning performances? Sometimes. Perhaps it is a combination. How else do you explain the prevalence of a show such as The Phantom of the Opera? Its novelty is certainly worn off. Thanks to numerous productions around the world, pretty much everyone has already seen it. There's also been a movie, so anyone who has not seen the stage play can watch the film or the anniversary concert. The show is based on a classic novel that has been adapted numerous times, so it's doubtful if there's anyone who's unfamiliar with the story. And yet, the show has been running on Broadway for over 25 years. Is it a genius score? Many feel that Andrew Lloyd Webber plagiarized much of the music from classic operas, so in that sense, it is both good and not. But in any case, it's far from debatable that you can hear better opera at, well, the opera. Is the spectacle a once-in-a-lifetime experience? Perhaps during the first year Phantom was on Broadway. Are the performers geniuses? Are the design elements, the images created enough? It's possible. Visual elements, as separate from special effects, can be moving and effective, otherwise why would people go to art galleries? And some of the performers are truly stunning and doing incredible things in their roles. Perhaps if the idea was good enough in the first place and the elements worked cohesively together, then even the shadow or echo of the original will still contain a trace pattern, as it were, of what is moving about the show. But what about stories, images, performances that are only meant to garner a certain response? Watching Mary Poppins fly over your head as an audience member at Disney's Mary Poppins is a viscerally exciting, magical experience. Was it placed in the show only to cause such a reaction, or is it necessary to the story? If we experience awe and delight at such a spectacle, does it mean that we are being manipulated? Or is the point of theater that our emotions will be manipulated in that way? Like the word critical, manipulation has taken on a negative connotation, the idea that one is being influenced unscrupulously as opposed to being handled skillfully. Why is the idea of Mary Poppins flying over the audience manipulative spectacle, but Mary Martin flying over the audience in Peter Pan was not? If we remove the idea of deliberate manipulation, can we accept the possibility that any show, even a technically flawed one, can move us? Stephen Schwartz said in 2008, I think people respond to things from a personal basis and bias. So yes, I suppose any show can move someone. After all, if it didn't move the creators in some way, they wouldn't have done it in the first place. Think about, for instance, all the people who went multiple times to see Jekyll and Hyde to the point where someone coined the name Jekies for them. Critics write from their own biases, too, and very often their opinions have little to do with intrinsic quality. Otherwise, shows like Xanadu wouldn't get good reviews, for instance. So I don't think taste or emotional response can ever be empiricized or universalized. The best one can hope for as a creator is a consensus, and that one reaches enough people that one's work succeeds in communicating. All right, perhaps as rational, intellectual individuals, we can agree that any show has the potential to move people. We may disagree in our responses to it, but hey, as a logical person, you're free to think what you want, just as I am. 
However, there is another factor that takes this debate out from the realm of intellectual discussion, a factor that blows intellectual reasoning out of the water and forces its opinion violently on anyone in hearing distance. It is this factor that is the audience's worst enemy in the critic-audience debate, and, ironically, it comes from audiences themselves. The fanatic factor. One of the reasons that people, especially critics, are so loath to admit that they were moved by a show, or even that a show has the potential to change someone's life, is because of fanatics. The typical fanatic, at least as it is conjured up in the minds of most theatergoers, is a screaming tween girl who stands by the stage door of her favorite show every night wearing homemade clothing that celebrates the show, such as a t-shirt covered in puff paint writing that says things like, Wicked Witch in Training, or I Love You, Adina. They act as if they're at a rock concert, screaming and crying at the drop of a hat and absolutely worshipping the actors in the show. But of course, a rock concert is designed to create such an emotional high. A show is meant to communicate a story. One of the reasons that fanatics are so mocked is because of the stereotype of their being young and uneducated theatrically. The idea being, put anything on a stage and they'll treat it as the holy grail. It would be one thing if it were only 10 through 13-year-olds who behave this way. After all, such preteen behavior is expected. Look at the response to High School Musical or Hannah Montana. But occasionally, teens and adults behave this way as well. Yes, some wear homemade t-shirts. Some even become stalkers. Fanatics have become such a phenomenon, especially evidenced by the unprecedented reaction to Wicked, that Variety published an article on fanaticism in their April 26 through May 2, 2004 issue, called Girl Gangs Invade the Gershwin by Marilyn Stasio. She says, The adolescent girls who turned out for Wicked at the Wednesday matinee Easter week did not outnumber adults in the audience, but it sure felt that way. All those bare knees and backpacks, all that high-pitched giggling and jumping jack vitality turned the Gershwin Theater into a pep rally and sent waves of energy to the stage. What exactly is the draw of this show, and how did it bring out all this girl power? The range of answers is truly bewitching. It's a singing and dancing. Don't be stupid, it's the incredible clothes. I mean, costumes. My mom wants me to see the witches. My mom made me take my sister. I heard she flies! It seems to boil down to this. Parents want to return to the magical kingdom of Oz that enchanted them as children, while their daughters want to watch the most unpopular girl in school turn the tables on her tormentors. Girls really love to talk about clothes. It seemed the young crowd at the Gershwin all wanted to live in Oz so they could go off to school in audacious green costumes, and they had other things to say about the show. I never really liked The Wizard of Oz, said 17-year-old Melissa from Randolph, New Jersey. I found that movie disturbing. She never got over it, her mother confirmed. But now that she's seen this show, she really likes The Wizard. Yeah, Melissa said, but I'd rather be the Wicked Witch. Not me, muttered a cheerleader type. Why, her mother wanted to know. You said you loved that she could fly. Yeah, I like that, but I can't identify with her, said the girl. Why not, asked Mom. Because she's not popular. Oh well, not everyone got the message. But many adolescents did. The idea that what makes them different is what makes them powerful and special is a potent message for anyone, let alone a young girl. The Grimmery, the official book on the making of Wicked, includes letters from audience members, especially girls, who have been moved and changed by the show. Their words are powerful and moving in their own right. One girl writes, My name is Farah Abruzera, and I am a Palestinian-American Muslim born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. My culture is very important to me. It gives me a sense of purpose and helps define who I am, yet it has also caused me a great deal of pain and hardship. Being Muslim and Arabic, I am faced with many different stereotypes, especially during this critical time in American history. I am labeled as a terrorist and an immigrant, as well as other ignorant slurs. I was very hesitant and nervous about going to the theater. 
I did not think I would fit into the theater crowd, but for the rest of my life, I will always remember my experience seeing Wicked. I was brought to tears several times during the performance. I identified very strongly with the character of Elphaba. I felt all her emotions from sadness to loneliness to defiance. I knew the pain she experienced as she was shunned for her green skin by her classmates. I cried with her when she heard the horrible and untrue comments made about her. I never thought that my life could be portrayed up on stage. I never thought that the theater could move me as much as it has. Another girl, Jennifer H., writes, I have been a Broadway fan my whole life. I have over a hundred shows on CD. However, I married a man who can't stand the genre. We reached a compromise that I could only listen to my music when he's not around. We came to New York about a month ago and I dragged him to Wicked. He's seen other plays and can tolerate them and find good things to appreciate, but none of them ever really touch them. Well, during Miss Menzel's performance of Defying Gravity, I look over and he has tears streaming down his face. I can't tell you what that meant to me. He insisted we get the soundtrack at the theater, did not want to take a chance that Tower Records would be out of it. He then played it over and over the next several days. Just recently, I heard him confess to a good friend of his, another guy no less, that this is one of his favorite albums of all time. He still wells up with each listening. To see my husband's eyes open to this world of musicals, well, it was truly astonishing. He said that this is what a musical should sound like. I agree. The question is, have all the fanatics truly been changed by the show they love? Or are they just overly exuberant? What if the answer is that they really have been changed? Of course, every person's experience is different, but what motivation could these fans have to act as they do except that they feel there is no other way to express their overwhelming emotions, legitimate emotions? Critics are not composers. Neither are fanatics intellectuals, at least not often. Their wealth of feeling is so great that they must share it with others, and this may be the only way they know how. C.S. Lewis wrote in Reflections on the Psalms, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise does not merely express but completes the enjoyment. I don't believe that it's the feeling that so many object to, but the action of praising. By praising, I mean expressing one's respect, gratitude, approval, or admiration for something. Most often it's done in response to joy, which Lewis used to connote the highest definition of imagination, that is, the sense of awe at the presence of the objective reality, the absolute truth, which lies outside ourselves. Lewis also specifically linked this joy with mythology. As human beings, there are some things that just speak to the human condition, certain things we all understand, feel, and relate to, and these are best expressed in varieties of storytelling, like plays or musicals. We as a species need to praise. We praise God, we praise our lover, we praise the beauty of nature. It's one thing to disapprove of the method of praise. After all, who wouldn't find the actions of tween fans at least mildly obnoxious? But it is the cause of the actions, the deeper action of and desire to praise, that seems to throw all logic out the window both for the practitioner and the observer and cause despisement and hatred for those who do it. It's the praise that links the emotion with the action, and somehow the annoyance with the latter has become the dislike of the former. Now anyone who expresses joy in an unpopular show is an obnoxious fanatic. The difficulty is that such unrivaled joy demands to be dealt with. It encroaches on our personal space and demands either a joining in or a complete rejection. It's this encroachment that is perhaps most uncomfortable, for it forces us to deal with why we are not experiencing the same vivid emotions as the fan. Are we missing something? Is it something we want? Is it something we're afraid of? Is it something that angers us? There's no neutrality where a fanatic is concerned. Neither is there logical reasoning. If the show itself did not force us to deal with our inner emotional life, then the fanatics do, whether we realize it or not. 
This reaction is only inflamed by the fact that pretty much all theater artists went into the theater because they had a fanatic-like reaction to a show they saw as a child. As they grew up and had to deal with the business side of theater, perhaps some of that joy faded. It's no surprise that many artists become jaded as they get older. A desire to, but feeling that they cannot recapture that childhood joy, may create a subconscious anger of those who are still in the throes of experiencing what they feel is forever closed to them. The musical title of show expressed a similar sentiment in the song A Way Back to Then. Dancing in the backyard, Kool-Aid mustache and butterfly wings, hearing Andrea McArdle sing from the hi-fi in the den. I've been waiting my whole life to find a way back to then. I aimed for the sky, a nine-year-old can see so far. I'll conquer the world and be a star. I'll do it all by the time I'm ten. I would know that confidence if I knew a way back to then. So I bailed on my hometown and became a college theater dork. I was eastbound and down, moving to New York. So I crammed my life in a U-Haul to find my part of it all. But the mundane sets in. We play by the rules and plow through the days. The years take us miles away from the time we wondered when. We'd find a way back to them. Some argue that the fanatics, while in their mind, are experiencing the joy and need to praise described above. They are, in reality, merely trying to fill an emotional hole. Perhaps they had a parent who made them feel badly about themselves. Suddenly they see a girl whose parent also made them feel badly about themselves, but who conquers and overcomes their parents' disapproval and becomes a strong, powerful, and good person. Aren't they just over-identifying with this character in order to make them feel better about their situation? In this instance, probably, but isn't that what theater is supposed to do in the first place? Tell us that we're not alone? True, it's possible to form an unhealthy attachment or even obsession that causes us to escape from reality, as opposed to learning a lesson that leaves us better equipped to face it. But we cannot assume that every Broadway fanatic has a psychological dysfunction. As G.K. Chesterton wrote, Fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. It seems the possibly unbalanced fanatics believe that dragons are real, but on the other side, many critics believe that dragons do not exist at all, in any form. Perhaps the true, healthy fanatic is merely reveling in the discovery that her dragons can be beaten. And when you don't believe in dragons at all, this reaction comes up against everything you most value. In the Grimmery, Alex C. shares... Then I saw Wicked and everything changed. I guess I should thank Adina Menzel, because she sang Defying Gravity so well, and when she sang that song, I had tears in my eyes. Ben Brantley, in his New York Times review of Wicked, writes, It's hard to avoid the impression that whenever Miss Chenoweth leaves the stage, Wicked loses its wit. I was so blissed out whenever Glinda was on stage that I just kept smiling in anticipation of her return when she wasn't around. Wicked does not, alas, speak hopefully for the future of the Broadway musical— Miss Chenoweth, on the other hand, definitely does. In A Pair of New Witches Still in Search of the Right Spell, Jason Zinneman of the New York Times writes, Wicked's soaring ticket sales and strong bond with its audience have overshadowed what's actually going on lately inside the Gershwin Theater, which, I can report, is far more ordinary. 
Those witches are still defying gravity, but now they seem to be coasting. Wicked has been playing long enough for its first and second string stars to have moved on, but not long enough for audiences to have forgotten them. The current cast is a patchwork of wildly uneven talents. Alphaba isn't the only one who looks green. What's missing is the one element that won over even the musical's detractors, personality. Wayne Salento, the choreographer of Wicked, has said, You're never really sure where one person's job leaves off and another one begins. A creator's vision is never purely expressed. It is interpreted through the actors, directors, and designers who bring their vision to life. Each person brings their own ideas and skill sets to their job, making it all but impossible to dole out credit for the success or failure of the elements that make up a show. Ben Brantley praised Kristen Chenoweth as Glinda in his review of Wicked for the New York Times. Is this because the role as written was especially inspiring? Because Kristen Chenoweth had been directed brilliantly by Joe Mantello? Or because Miss Chenoweth is such a phenomenal performer that her inherent talent rose above subpar material and direction? This dilemma is not only evident in a musical's performance, but also in the creative process that brings the show to life. The composer, lyricist, book writer, director, choreographer, and sometimes producers all collectively create a show starting from the first workshop up until opening night, and sometimes after. A director may disagree with the focus of a show or elements of its structure. A performer may have difficulty connecting with a particular song and a new one will need to be written. Likewise, a writer may take great issue with how a scene is being directed, or even with what costumes were designed for a particular number. In the end, a show is an amalgamation of compromises. Often, no one will even remember who is responsible for what in the final incarnation of a show. Therefore, it is apparent that even critics, proprietors of analysis and reasoning, must rely on the abstract to do their job. Whether they know it or not, they are beholden to the same rules of the theater as audience members. Ultimately, a critic's response comes down to whether or not they were affected by what was presented on stage. It's a gut reaction. They either enjoyed it or they didn't. The difference is that a critic is required to dissect why they did or didn't enjoy something and ultimately give praise or criticism to the responsible parties. The problem is that when it comes down to it, the critic can't possibly know for sure who was responsible. Critics have criticized Stephen Schwartz's scores to such shows as Pippin and Wicked, but have praised the shows themselves. What none have taken into account is that these shows started with Mr. Schwartz. They were his idea, and he was the driving force behind getting them produced and maintaining the inherent message, themes, and heart of the stories. You cannot find something meaningful in these shows, but dismiss Schwartz's work on them. Likewise, a director can transform adequate or subpar material into something truly extraordinary. Although the idea for the show did not originate with the director, using puppets in Avenue Q is a directorial choice, whoever first came up with it in this instance, and one which made the show something much better and more interesting than it would have been without them. Very often, you can't pinpoint what exactly went right or wrong about a show. Some cases may be obvious, but often the elements that make up a production seem to meld into a new entity taking on a life of its own. It's this amalgamation that all shows aim for, and all achieve to a greater or lesser degree, partly because of the nature by which a show is created. Would Kristen Chenoweth's performance have been as good with a different director, with a different script or score? Whatever the answer, it certainly would have been different, and whether better or worse, that different performance would not have impacted Ben Brantley in the same way as the one Miss Chenoweth gave. So then, in the case of Wicked, for example, what's the solution? Should it have had a different composer-lyricist? The show would never have existed without Stephen Schwartz in the first place, so change the composer and you erase the show. A different director? Well, was Joe Mantello responsible for Kristen Chenoweth's performance, or for the sappy Aussie sentiment? 
What about a different book writer or different cast members? Answer this, and you will have solved one of the greatest mysteries of the theater. So, how is it possible to be deeply moved by imperfect, even flawed art? C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory says, In speaking of this desire, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I am almost committing an indecency. I am trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence, the secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. The books or music in which we thought it was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself. Do you think I am trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. All artists, whether writers, directors, or performers, are attempting to express something abstract, some idea or feeling larger than themselves so deep and complex that it can only be effectively communicated through parable storytelling. This is true of everything from Hamlet to Mamma Mia. Communicating joy effectively can often be just as difficult as communicating tragedy. Ultimately, everything is in service of this greater idea. When a show is successful, it is this idea that causes people to rave about it, and the individual elements are only praised inasmuch as they aided in its communication. But sometimes it is possible for this idea in which the show is in service to shine through the material, even if the material is flawed. For an audience, it's not merely a question of witnessing technical mastery and craft, beauty as it were. There is a deeper longing to somehow be a part of it. C.S. Lewis writes, God has given us the morning star already. You can go and enjoy the gift on many fine mornings if you get up early enough. What more, you may ask, do we want? Ah, but we want so much more. Something the books on aesthetics take little notice of. But the poets and the mythologies know all about it. We do not want merely to see beauty. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. To be united with the beauty we see. To pass into it. To receive it into ourselves. To become part of it. That is why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a human soul, but it can't. They tell us, the beauty born of murmuring sound will pass into a human face, but it won't. But if we take the imagery of scripture seriously, if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and modern poetry, so false as history, may be very near the truth as prophecy. Musical theater is the art form that comes as close to doing what Lewis describes as possible. Music, song, is literally an innate part of every character on stage. When in real life we describe instances where it was like there was music playing, cliches such as hearing bells during a marriage proposal or a marching band when receiving a promotion, etc. In a musical, such things are made manifest and echo through our beings on a physical and emotional level. For times in our lives when we feel our emotions overwhelming us, onstage characters in just such a situation are brought to the point of song. Art emerges from their joys and sufferings. Theater is the only art that exists out of time. It is inherently an art form of the moment. It will not be the same tomorrow night as it is tonight, yet it was crafted and frozen in the past, and all the time the artists who perform it are aware of where it is headed. The future is as planned as the present, and just as the show will be different each night, 
so it will be the same. If you add to this the intention of the author to communicate a mythic theme that speaks to its audience, it is possible for the heart, that far offshore toward which the artists are aiming, to shine through. After all, there is in reality no such thing as perfect art. Even Stephen Sondheim, the guru of musical theater, finds fault with work of his that is lauded for its perfection. Therefore, artists must rely on something outside of themselves to ultimately communicate their vision. So, how is it possible to not be moved by technically perfect art? In The Abolition of Man, Lewis writes, But you cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you have explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. To see through all things is the same as not to see. On the opposite side of the spectrum, technical mastery for its own sake does itself a great disservice by cutting off the root of what makes art worthwhile. Joel D. Chaston described just such an idea in the work of L. Frank Baum. He writes, L. Frank Baum seemed to anticipate a postmodernist aesthetic more sympathetic to his kind of fiction than the earlier formalism. Early in The Patchwork Girl of Oz of 1913, the would-be magician Dr. Pipped brings to life a patchwork girl and a glass cat. The wild, crazy quilt patchwork girl and the sleek, orderly glass cat serve well as metaphors for two kinds of art. The patchwork girl is a polyphonic work of art, one in which there is no attempt to orchestrate or unify the various peaches or patches from which she has been constructed. Her actions, both literally and figuratively, suggest that she is a carnivalized creation, a wise fool who brings down the pretentious. The glass cat, on the other hand, is a monologic creature whose mechanical brains give her the single-minded purpose of self-aggrandizement. The glass cat can be seen as a metaphor for the kind of art that elicits flattery by flattering the viewer. Her purpose is single and thus easy to identify, and she satisfies the formalist's preoccupation with the inner workings of an artistic creation because the glass cat is transparent. Anyone can watch her pink brains roll around and her precious red heart beat. Baum's attitude toward the glass cat and patchwork girl thus suggests his turning his back on art that strives for elitist perfection toward that which is more energetic and democratically accessible, if lacking in polish. It is no surprise that those artists who are most lauded for their technique are also almost always criticized for a coldness in their work. Ironically, most university programs tend to focus on turning out this type of artist. After all, technique is teachable and easy to gauge, being emotionally moving is subjective. It is actually surprisingly easy to follow the rules of good composition. Complex, yes, but requiring genius? No. Most people could turn out a decent song if they follow certain prescribed chord progressions and arrange according to established rules for choral harmonizing. Though a moving work certainly cannot exist without technique, along with singing being the second most commanded practice in the Bible is the stipulation to sing well, there is something that happens apart from technique that is ultimately what makes a work of art effective or not. Chaston goes on to say, Yes, you can escape from your dreary domestic life into fairyland, Baum's books say. This subversive message may be one of the reasons the Oz books took so long to become accepted as classics in spite of their instant popularity. For years, they did not appear on lists of recommended juvenile literature, and in the 1930s and 1940s, they were actually removed from many schools and libraries. The library justified its censorship at the time by pointing out that the books were not beautifully written and that the characters were two-dimensional. This is arguable, but it has not prevented many other less-than-stylistically perfect children's books of the period from being admired and recommended. It seems more likely that critics recognize the subversive power of Baum's creation. 
So if intention is directly related to a work's ability to move an audience, why are there instances of well-intentioned shows becoming horrible flops? Perhaps it's because there was a necessary level of technique missing. Or perhaps it's because the intention was more related to the artist wanting to move people rather than the show moving people. Maybe the creator put too much of an emphasis on the critics when working on the show. All of this is subjective. However, if there is a level of intention necessary for creators, is that intention equally true of audience members? Our folklore is riddled with stories of someone seeing someone or something not as they are, but as what they could be, and lo and behold, by the end of the story, the person is transformed. The beast becomes the prince. Perhaps that is too far off the mark. It's naive to think that just by going to see a show with hope, optimism, and the best of intentions, you can magically will that show into becoming a transformative experience. However, it is not an unreasonable idea when put in a milder form. Even books such as The Bestseller of the Secret advocate picturing and expecting the things you want, thereby drawing them to you. There is much power in the human mind. Broadway, indeed the entire theatrical community, has become cynical in recent decades. As we have seen, the potential jadedness of critics is not limited to those in the critical profession. I shudder to imagine the comments posted in response to this podcast. Schwartz is somewhat unique in that despite emotional professional setbacks, he continues to produce work focusing on themes that resonate with the general population. His shows are neither naive fluff nor dark cynicism, and perhaps it is that middle ground that should be the aim of all those in the theatrical community, always with the understanding that it is something apart from ourselves, neither audience nor artist nor critic can claim to have a finger on it, that creates magic on stage. I would like to end with this literary sentiment that I think nicely sums up the ideas at play. It is the actor's job to show you what it would be like to be a princess, a fairy, a god, to indulge all your deepest desires and impulses, to fly. In reality, the actor does not feel like a princess, like a god, or like they are flying. They are tired, drained, and trying to remember all the technical considerations at play. Inside, they are the furthest thing from a princess. But sometimes, Maybe only once or twice in a lifetime, an actor feels like a princess when they are playing at being a princess. By dressing up as something, they for a moment become them. They do for a moment really fly. And for that one moment, we dedicate a lifetime to the theater. A lifetime in which we will primarily feel tired and drained and exhausted. But once, just once, we may be able to say, I flew. And because we once flew, everything is possible. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to the premiere episode of Stage Directions. I'm Ashley Griffin, your theatrical Hermione Granger. Come follow me on Instagram at Ashley Griffin Official. Yes, Griffin like Gryffindor, but with an I, not a Y. And on Twitter at Ashley J. Griffin. You can also check out my website at AshleyGriffinOfficial.com. 